That's why I came in. So yeah, so back. we're we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk shit about people, but we want to have plausible deniability. Right? Nah, it wasn't you. We were talking about. That's fine. And I'm mad that I wasn't recording for that whole story. You just like the whole thing we just talked about because I think that's really cool. Oh. So well, I can retell it. Yeah, I'm gonna ask Please. you the same questions. Like I didn't just ask you those questions. I like it. At least you know the flow. So Sarah got like a potential job offer thing or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like working with a, a woman who's been asked to do some historical uh, prop master for a, a, a potential TV show series. Ooh. Um, HBO. Disney. Ah. So I'm part of a quilt group that's been uh, working for the last two years over Zoom for the pandemic, where everybody would make squares and we'd put it all together. Yeah. And so um, there's a, a book that was written in the 1970s that's science fiction about it. It's science fiction because there's time travel involved, but it's about the antebellum south and slavery. Okay. And so with all of the things kind of, you know, the social justice movement and everything, there's been this kind of re, uh, retelling of history. So it's really exciting that they're going to do this and trying to be as historically accurate as possible. That's super cool. And the book, even though it was written in the 70s, has a very, uh, doesn't have a whitewashed yeah. feel for the slavery. So, so it's, a, it's a very well-researched book. And so um, what I'm going to be doing is um, helping coordinate all the people to make the quilts. And then there's That's different cool. styles of quilts, but it's early 1800s. So trying to be historically accurate, like the Baltimore album quilt, is too late for what we're talking about. But yeah. it's based in Mar the whole book was based in Maryland. Oh, that's super awesome. Yeah. So I don't know what you're doing. There's kind of an example, like a, a slave quilt. Oh, it's beautiful. Nice. This is a quilt we just made. I like that a lot. Oh my God, that's beautiful. Isn't that awesome? It's beautiful. We raffle them off. I'm this such a half-assed sewer. I wish beautiful. I had the patience to sit and sew a quilt. My high school girlfriend's grandmother That's was really cool big I into made. quilting. Oh, like she pretty. was a she was a co-owner of a quilt shop nice. in Delaware and stuff. I think she made me one at some point. It's probably at my house still, like my parents' house still. I have old band um, T-shirts in a bag that I swear I'm going to sew Sarah, together. Sarah, the first and make one that you showed us. What would be like that in like the this one? Yes, would that be what kind of like style of oh uh, like oh is there like a name for it's, that this yeah. is a strip quilt um strip quilt strip quilt because it's made with strips it is a foundation piece which means the quilts are sewn to a base of fabric foundation mm -hmm. and then um does that sound modern or is it recently or is it not really no wow it's not a lot of quilts and quilt patterns aren't really as modern as you, as you think. Like right. this, you could find examples of this, especially if you look at G's Benz quilts, which G's Benz is a particular place in North Carolina that was an old slave colony, and they actually their quilts are gorgeous, and they very much don't follow like, a, like a traditional, traditional sort of pattern. Yeah. Um, so like right. house top and and log cabins. Um, And so those things structurally, right, like you build that top layer that's the mm -hmm. really decorative sort of thing. And then what I feel like I recall is you have that piece and then you're stitching that to a back piece. But then there's like batting in between, correct, which is like yep. an insulating layer. Yep. So there's the, the top piece, which is usually pieced, uh, batting, which 
could be cotton batting, but it can also be like old newspaper, sheets. You know, a lot of people okay. use a lot of different things. Huh. And then there's the back of the quilt, and I'm trying to find you an example, and what I call the after quilt. <laughs> and, um, and it can be, um, the after quilt can also be pieced or it can be whole cloth. Um, and that's really fun because I, I think it's fun sometimes to have something going on on the back. So I always try to make the back of my quilts um, interesting. So like, here's here's a quilt. Oh, that's pretty. Right. And I try to do things that I don't like. So like that, it's very floral and not. Which you is did not that. Me. Yeah. And that's the back. Where's of your quilt. Instagram? Oh gosh. It would be a million dollar idea. You know? Oh, I like the strip. And that's oh. the back. So okay. I'm on my rooftop. I, I'm a quilt junkie because I feel like you can have the appropriate cooling or heating underneath of a quilt. So that's a modern pretty. That's a modern style batik quilt based on a Diebenkorn painting, and that's the back. Okay. You, call, you said what kind of? You said batik? Yeah, this is batik, and it's also, I based it off a Diebenkorn so I heard that, painting. So I heard that term before when my sister brought back some kind of like artwork from Africa. Is okay. it the same thing or a different thing? Well, there there are African wax prints, and okay, it's a similar so, technique. So wax. Okay, okay. Right, it's a right. similar technique where um, they use wax as a resist. Yeah. But African wax prints are uh, they're they're very cool. I'm trying to see if I can find you some examples of ones, but um, they're different from Indonesian batiks, for instance. So like that, these are African wax prints. They're very bold colors, um, and uh, they tend to be very geometric, whereas yeah, yeah. batiks tend to be kind of like watercolor. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's awesome. I have some batiks that I use for color patterns. Really? Yeah, but they're like the watercolor looking ones. That's cool. I was just like, these are like hippie prints. People like them. Sarah, do you do, do, you do commission color. work? Yeah. Like if people like want to hire you to make stuff for them, you'll mm -hmm. do that kind of stuff? Yep. Cool. Yep, I have done that. Um, I also make it for friends and family. You know, like this is a quilt I gave my nephew and niece when they got really married. Really amazing. So. What is what like? That's incredible. Length of time it probably takes you to make one. Where you're like, if you if you were just kind of working on it, like at a at a at a industrious but not killing yourself kind of pace. Um, I made this one. In about a day and a half. That's it. Yeah, this that's one. dedication. But that when, one was really easy. Now, when you sit down okay. to work, though, do you, are you like in the zone, like no distractions? Mm. And is this sewing machine or hand stitch? Or? Oh, so I do not machine. hand sew. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it depends on how compl complicated the pattern is. Yeah. So one quilt could take, um, you know. So like that's a postage stamp quilt. This is a postage stamp quilt. This took me a little bit longer in some respects because it's lots of little tiny pieces. Have you ever thought about doing, the first thing I thought when I saw that is one of those things where it's a picture that's made up of a bunch of oh, other pictures. Yeah. Um, Have you ever thought about making a quilt like that? No, because I can never see those. We all had our Bob Marley yeah. pixel picture. I didn't have that. <laughs> yeah. No, you mean know, like those, those one, like those 3D thing? Yeah. I mean that's kind of what the what that the pumpkin was right like so all those are different prints mm -hmm. right 
But no, the ones you're saying now, I've never really looked at those. I've done portraits, and I've actually been thinking about doing, this is really weird, um, animal portraits, but I haven't done it yet. But I did There's these nothing portraits. nothing weird about animal portraits. So okay. That's, so that's... Um, Elijah Cummings, right? No, the other guy. Good trouble. Um, John... John Lewis. John Lewis, John thank Lewis. you. And <sighs> RGB. Very cool. So with batik fabrics, Very and cool. I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool That's to do... The shadow is really cool with the blue. Yeah. I love that. Wouldn't it be good, cool to do, like, dog portraits? That's fucking cool. Yes. Uh, this way. Yes. Yes. How important is symmetry when it comes to... Uh, to quilts? Yeah. Depends on the... It, it depends on, on the pattern. Like, right. this one is not symmetrical. Right. But... So I have a lot of, but I had a lot of fun with that. Right. Right? So it's really, sorry. Beautiful. Oh, it's cool, though. Yeah. And like this that. one was like, so I don't really like orange. I'll believe it. I have an orange car. Don't, just don't go there. Yeah, you, have, you have two orange cars. I have two vehicles. orange cars. I don't really like red, I, see, and I have I a red I thought that was like an intentional thing. It was, it was prettier than the blue one. Oh, my God. That's why I bought the red one, because it was prettier than the blue one. It was like a baby blue. I was like, I can't drive a baby blue car. Well, I, bought a bl I bought a black truck because it was the only truck that I could buy for 20 grand that I could find. That, that's a detail of that quote. You're lucky that's you beautiful. find a truck of that one. Price. That place, man, I told you about. They got they got other stuff now. Yeah. I like, like that spot. So symmetry depends on the well, pattern. There's no symmetry old there. and used already. Right? That was the one I showed you right, before. No, right, right. no symmetry. Right. But then if you're doing a quilt like... Um, Blows my mind. Oh, this one. Uh, it's symmetrical, sort of. It's like a modified log cabin. Right. That one's cool. And then... Oh, sorry, I didn't show you that one. And that's all Japanese um, kimono quilt fabrics, or kimono fabrics that I cut into... Do you typically so only do cotton, one. or do you use all different kinds of fabrics? I prefer cotton. I'm not really... I'm going to go through my stuff. stuff. I have like so that. many things. Like, they're, it's harder to work with, or...? Yeah, silks are slippery, and yeah. you can't really wash them, and... Um, yeah. I typically end up pressing some sort of interface to yeah. stuff before, like, anything with any sort of poly or... or and I, but I've silk done, I did a silk quilt using old Thai silk fabrics. Yeah. And, um, um, that was probably super cool. It's, I'll see if I can, I have it here somewhere. And then, but you can't really wash them, right? And it's huge. So, um, laundry mat. So it's, no, they're tight. They're silks from old neckties. So it, I have to take it to a dry cleaner. So you kind of just, I just air it out. But the funny part is one of my dogs, um, Heat on it, <laughs> and the salt paper. left a, like a, a silver line. Yeah. So I embroidered silver thread. Oh, we're and good, put, bro. You embraced a spider on it. <laughs> you embraced it. That is super cool, right? And that's made out of silk. All right, silk. And there's my my dog pee line that I embroidered. God, that's so fun. Right, that's super cool. So the dog right. peed on the corner, so I embroidered it with silver thread and uh, put like a spider, spider on it because this pattern is called the spider web. Of the silk. Very cool. Huh. So, even though it was clean, it wouldn't go home out. That's the quilt. Mm. So their symmetry is important, but it was also like, you know, to a certain extent. Does that answer your question? It's a really, I was a very long-winded answer. No, I mean, that's no, cool. No, it's amazing. So like that, I... 
I'm super into any kind of thing that's a craft, right? Like some sort of thing that takes skill and like effort to kind of learn and that has like history to it and stuff like that is the kind of stuff that I'm into. So I just, I really, I'm, even if I'm like, I'm never going to do that kind of stuff. I just think like, uh, I have, I have an appreciation for that stuff. And I, I tend to feel like people who engage in any activity like that can kind of pick up on those things in other places and appreciate that stuff, even if it's not a thing that they're super into. I mean, yeah, I mean, handwork's really amazing. Like, I, I feel like um, it, it's, and a lot of it's an oral tradition. You sort of teach yourself. You might go to a couple of classes here and there, but it's it's really just about your aesthetic. And so I've been teaching some people, and they keep going, well, what about this? I'm like, just whatever you like. Like, there's no rules. So if, some if people need your rules. aesthetic, right, you have to, like, play and figure out kind of what you like. With With me for quilting, what I always try and do is, use a color I don't like or a technique that I don't particularly care for or something that makes me try something and open up. So a lot of times with quilts, I'll, I'll pick a, like my, one of the first quilts I made, I don't really like yellow. I had this, all these beautiful purples and blacks, added the yellow and the whole quilt popped. Yeah. Right? So when you kind of like embrace what you don't like about something and include it, it actually makes everything else better. Yeah. And yeah. that, that, kind of lesson really does work everywhere else yeah like because then you don't get so into your own therapy tonight do you have to start small (laughs) with that though when you like a pick uh, a color you don't like a uh thing that you want to just go wild with like improvisation do you have to feel a certain way about yourself to do that feel comfortable or is it just like a something you just jump for just uh, either right well, it sounds like you're trying to kind of make yourself feel uncomfortable on purpose. Right. 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 So it's yes. That, is that, that a... some people call it the uncanny, uncanny valley, right? Like. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard that term. Before. Oh, it's kind of an yeah. art term, and it, it's yeah. kind of like that, that place that well, it's kind of self, uncanny valley, uncanny valley. It's kind of like where things aren't. You're not feeling where you are. Like you're, it's it, you're deliberately sort of making yourself question where you are. Yeah. And what you're looking at. I hate that feeling. <laughs> well, it's not always a good that. feeling. It's definitely not always a good feeling, but right. it's it's kind of like it it sort of pushes you to sort of embrace what makes you uncomfortable. Because most of the time people don't like being told no, they don't like being uncomfortable, you know, and our culture lately has also been, you know, really like, well, that's offensive. Well, like the world isn't about not not offending you. Like if you're not offended by this, then go away. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the Uncanny Valley is, is kind of like embracing that sort of like, why are you uncomfortable? What's making you uncomfortable? How do you lean into that so that you can, you know, learn something from it? Yeah. And so when you're, when you're making work, and, and it's true for ceramics too, like the more you make those mistakes, the more you move into something that you like have this visceral reaction to against and you just lean into it, you you actually sort of like open stuff up. I like that. And in dog training, this is a big thing for me, like purposefully restricting the tools that you use to try to accomplish goals makes it really difficult to get things done, but it makes you have to pay a lot more attention to every little piece of what you're doing. Um, And I think that it just gives you a a depth of knowledge that you can't get uh, when you're just kind of trying to be like, what's the most efficient way 
to get to this point. And so you pick up certain things that you might not pick up in other ways. So like when I started really looking at Keeler method and trying to train dogs in that way, it was like at first I was really focusing on how much faster I could achieve some arbitrary result. And then over time you start realizing like the value and like doing things in a way where you're doing everything very manually and putting your hands on the dog. Like you can feel the tension in their muscles and that going away and like that that's indicative of a change in their mental state um and you can you can it, it like forces you to 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 focus on making sure that they're really understanding what it is that you're asking them to do and like acquiring some conceptual understanding rather than just um rather than just like pushing through things right so you see this a lot i think when people jump right to e-collar it's like I, I have a tool now that is persistent it's always there on the dog and i can compel them to do anything that i want and people look at that and they 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 feel like because they achieved the same from their perspective end goal right my dog was over there investigating something and i wanted them to disengage with that and then come to me when i called them and they think that they have the same thing that one of you has when they were pushing a button to make the dog leave that thing that was distracting them and come back to their handler. And you have a dog that will voluntarily disengage from that thing and come back to you because you don't have any equipment on your dog where you can force them to do it. So you have to have done this extra level of work to get the dog to the point where you've moved past any contention. You've gotten enough buy-in that the dog is willing to be cooperative and engage in this stuff voluntarily. You've instilled that sense of responsibility. And like you, when you start this stuff, it's just that surface layer is like, did I get the functional thing that I wanted? And then beyond that, you start caring about the, I guess artistry is like the best word to use for mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could, you can make a blanket that will keep you warm and do that by just like, I don't know, like just cutting a piece of fabric and covering yourself with it. But that's not like everything you're just talking about. Like you're talking about this history and these different patterns and that they have a connection to certain places sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, uh, and, and, and just this, this like extra level of depth that I think sometimes people who don't appreciate these things, look at it, like you're nerding out about this thing and now it's time for me to mentally check out. But like when you find, this is what I'm talking about, about when you find people that like care about that stuff, then, then, they can appreciate that even in things that they don't care about that much. Like when I listen to somebody who like, I don't know, works at a coffee company when they roast coffee mm -hmm. and they can talk about like how stuff being grown in a certain climate affects how it tastes and, the, and, and different things like that. Like I don't pay that much attention to it. Right. I just like find one that I like and that's what I drink. And then that's kind of it for me. Same thing with like wines and beers and well especially having celiac i just drink whatever's not going to make me feel like shit for the next two weeks but but i i just i think that i think that it's it's neat to see people like uh have a depth of um appreciation for something but besides just like the the functional level of it mm -hmm. and um 
and and I think about it more and stuff like when we're talking about dogs like before I started this thing we were I was talking about like going to couples therapy and like talking about being able to communicate with a person better but so like I think about it there because there's there's a level of interaction between two people um, and so I guess like I kind of I, I maybe I discount it a little bit sometimes when it's these other things that we're talking about but now that I'm thinking about it I think that there's maybe I shouldn't do that <laughs> I'm kind of being that person that I just kind of said annoys me a little bit yeah. <laughs> well I think that one thing about when you say artistry there's this perception that there's a hierarchy of art and like if a lot of people come well I'm not a creative person I'm like but you quilt or you do this other thing and it's all art like artistry really is about going into the granular details and being able to put things together in a way that is aesthetically pleasing and that gives you fulfillment. And that could be as simple as, you know, if you're an accountant and numbers do it for you, that's, there's art in that. Those people are kind of nerds, though. I'm an accountant and numbers don't do <laughs> I it forgot, for me. I completely <laughs> forgot about that yeah, before you know I cracked that I mean, joke. No, right? no, no, some people, my brother-in-law, we'll call him, um, is a is a tax attorney and like he oh he we Sorry. somebody would bring up a tax thing and like he gets into it and he's all just like and he'll be talking to me because he thinks that there's some sort of financial like relationship that we have and I'm just like I hate what I do it just pays my well, bills that's a different <laughs> thing but if there's something that you no. really really love to do you start you you do the research you start yeah. learning about it so. You know, it's a little fire. I think more people are, are creative and, and artistic than they think they are mm -hmm. because they, they just say, well, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to paint. Well, that's only one way that art street comes about. Mm -hmm. right? That's only one aspect of it. All right, so since we're talking about art Sorry. appreciation now, yeah. no, this is great. And, and I, it's timely because I was asked to do an obedience class slash presentation kind of thing for our local NAVDA chapter this weekend. And so I was trying to put together some content and it's like, you're, you're kind of getting like, people are like, well, you're, you guys obedience is good. So why don't you teach other people about this stuff? And then like immediately after that, the statement was like, but you got to keep it really simple for people. And so like how, and this is the problem that I have with training here too. Um, like for money where that is kind of just volu volunteer stuff is like how do you feel like you can develop this appreciation for the artful part of these sorts of things and kind of help people get past just the functional components of it and the reason why I think that the reason why I think it's important I don't have to answer about how to do it that's what I'm actually asking you guys but like I, I think that that's where you get people who show a willingness to pay more attention to what they're doing. And so I think like when I observe a lot of people working with their dogs, they're not really being very thoughtful or being very attentive to what is happening. And I think that if they focused more on the nuance and, and, and kind of were being more mindful about what they were doing because they had this deeper level of appreciation and care about it that that, that that would just come and so like how do you foster that stuff in people 
Or do you think it's just got to be something that, like, develops on its own? But I guess, like, did anybody get you into the stuff that you're into? Or did you just kind of say, like, well, this looks neat, and then you were kind of, like, self-directed? And there's no hope for me, like, <laughs> kind of starting I mean, I, that fire. I somebody. feel like other people can have an influence to, like, kind of get you into things. Yeah. But there has to be something that clicks with you with something. So, like, with dogs, it was when I came to you with Henry, I could not walk him down the street. I had zero control over him. He was yeah. insane. But then, you know, we're doing long line work, and he runs to the end of the line twice, and he's just like, oh, I'm going to hang out with you. And, like, it would just, like, it made it, like, threw a little gasoline on a fire that was inside of me, like, I can get this dog to listen. Yeah. Like, we keep... We're going to end up being at the farmer's market and doing all these things. Now we're not. But yeah. <laughs> it definitely, it planted a seed to want to do better. So the, and it's, at NAFTA, I don't know if somebody ever, like, their dog just blows them off completely or they get frustrated or embarrassed or something. It would be, I know for me, I like uncomfortable feelings to go away. Uh-huh. So I'm just as trainable as the dog. Okay. It's like, I don't want you uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable myself. Like, let's just walk down That's the street huge. and nobody flip out. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't want anybody to look at us. Yeah. Like, so, so like, so the piece, the big piece there for me was like, you needed, you needed kind of some quick wins to get you to buy the in. Quick a wins bit. definitely helped. Okay. They definitely helped that. Like, I mean, I feel like if you have an easier go at it and then when you hit a snag, you're more likely to quit than if you had a couple things you already got past. Yeah. Like, banking those little successes help along the way. Because it's like, oh, well, I know I just have to stick to it. Or I just yeah. have to try it a different way. Yeah. But what? I, and that's what I kind of liked about Keeler is that it was like, we're going to do these things. Like, if we get stuck somewhere, then we can troubleshoot it. But yeah. really, if you just do the work, it, it plays in your favor for the most part. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would argue that, like, training with that methodology takes away some of the artfulness of what you're doing. But what I think is th there's a lot of value in is two things. First is, like, following kind of a more prescribed way of doing stuff. It also makes it makes not only the work you're going to do tomorrow predictable, but it, after you do this with enough dogs, you, you know the places that are common trouble spots. And so then if I can tell people in advance, like somebody like you, it's like you get these quick wins and I say like on week four, day, whatever, right? Like when we start working on down placements, <laughs> you're going to have trouble, right? Or like when we get to the open level work and we're like, all right, so when you start working on the retrieve, everything's going to like go okay until you are placing that object in front of the dog's mouth and you're not you're not opening their mouth for them and you're giving them the choice to do it yep. and sometimes you're waiting there for a really long time until they make that time. choice but you can't move forward until your dog shows you proves to you that they understand mm -hmm. what it is you're asking of them yep. even no matter how reluctant it is that they do it and then I can tell you again like when you try to transition from holding that object to having it placed on the ground you are going to I'm have still trouble stuck there yeah right She's so just like she'll walk up to no I'm yeah. good because it's my idea. It's not her idea. Right. Typically, so, I can't get her to stop picking things up. So you see that kind of stuff, but then that's the piece like Tony Anchetta, right? So he, he, he made a comment the other day, uh, maybe not the other day. It might have been just in something I was reading of his that he probably shared with me a long time ago because um, I try to copy and paste and keep like a running list of a lot of the stuff that he says 
or rights. Um, and he was saying like, somebody was asking how a certain dog was working out and maybe if he was doing anything different and he was kind of just saying like, no, I'm like, I do the same work the same way every time. He's like, like you do a little bit of adjustment here and there and, and, and like, so the dog might work differently for you, but the work that you're doing is kind of the same. Um, and I think the point that he's trying to make is that like, you can, you can follow a methodology and still within that you have, like you have that structure that we were talking about earlier that I think people need, um, especially when they're learning something new, but then there's a lot of flexibility there that I think people don't understand again until they get in the weeds and then they can recognize some of that nuance. Well, that's, I think, the problem with the killer method for a pet dog is that you have to, you have owners that are looking at you with bright eyes yeah. and you're expecting them to do A, B, and C. Yeah. They are not emotionally ready for that. Yeah. And so you get a lot of mistakes that could harm the dog later. They're looking at the long line work, looking at them just... Yeah. It's, it's what's tough with it. Yeah, I, I think that's why I'm trying to have like this like lower level of stuff where you're trying to articulate concepts to people. And so like one of the big ones in that family dog class is like you got to let your dog own their behavior because yep. like they can't show responsibility until you place some responsibility on them. Like they're not they're going to buckle under that weight if you drop it all at once. But if you like gradually lay that on them, that's fine. But on the flip side. If you're always helping alleviate some of that pressure, then they're never shouldering all of that responsibility and you're gonna get different behavior from them, right? Like when people get older and we become adults and we have like bills and other responsibilities and things like that, it's a large, I think it's a large part of why we just stop engaging in a lot of the bullshit that we engaged in when we were younger. It's because I got other shit I gotta do. So I don't have time, I don't have time to be in trouble so much. You know what I mean? So, I, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Is there, like, a different breed of owner now? Because I feel like, I got, what, she'll be 11. I've been a client for seven years at least. It's getting better. I don't know if I, I felt like I had, like, maybe I'm more soulless than other people. And I'm like, and I've been through enough bullshit where I'm just That's like, I don't thing. care what you're feeling Huge. right yeah, now. Yeah, you're yeah. going to trust me and we're going to yeah. get through this. But, like, I just feel like everyone's so, like, I don't know if they don't listen or if they're just so soft or like. Well, you so I, I feel like I beat my dogs, but I'm just like, no, uh, uh, no, they're being a pussy. I guess. Like, <laughs> like, like, tell your dog no. Yeah. <laughs> like, I so I, I have a couple opinions on this. I think the first thing is is that you're coming from a place of uh, experience now, where I uh, not good at it, but yeah, yeah, it's like. To a person that's never had this experience and never been through it before, because they don't know how it's going to end up on the other side, they don't have a level of trust in it that they, that they, that they're going to have, like you're going to have because you have gone through it. So I think that that's the first thing is people just like, uh, and that's a lot of what Justin's saying about why people don't do the work correctly is because they don't trust it. And so I've said to, I think a, a lot of you at different points in time, or I've said it in different classes, like, I'm going to try to show you what to do with this dog. But what I'm really trying to do is like, you'll be so well prepared for the next one, right? Mm -hmm. That like, it, it's going to go a lot smoother. Um, 
Oh, so I, so I, yeah, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, is I think that for a long time there was this thing like positive reinforcement only is the way to go. And what I am getting a lot more now is we hit the top of that bell curve and now we're coming down the other side. Is people <laughs> are like, <laughs> I already tried that shit and it didn't work very well. And Can't so like now, bed. like I actually need to, I actually need to have stuff done. Right. And that, that's, well, that's what happens. Right. So like, it's a similar situation is right. like that shit peaked. And now people are like, oh, shit. you like <laughs> me too though. Like, like I also, oh, it can happen to me. Oh, well then this is bullshit. Right. Yeah. So like you kind of see some of that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think some people are just like, things are trendy and then they burn out at a certain point in time. And, and, and so I'm seeing a lot more clients now where I felt like I had to spend a lot more time explaining stuff to people and like preparing them gently for like this thing that was like, well, your dog's doing this thing. And so we're going to have to correct him for that because we've tried other things and they're not working. And we, I am not having to do that as much anymore. Right. Like it's just, it's gotten a lot better. I know I've tried to over the years. Like, I don't know if we need our own like no Nate like support group like just like i've tried to say it's like we're leaving a class or something like we've all been there like just just you just got to do it like just try to be like like don't be embarrassed you should have seen me like having to wrestle my dog like things like that but like sometimes i just wonder this is the 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 other thing that i'm trying to do and so like this is where there's 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 i have two thoughts about this the first is like a reason why i don't put a lot of like content out on how I do things that I do is because out of context a lot of things are gonna maybe look a certain way or people are gonna have certain feelings about them and so like if I have a dog that takes a swipe at me and I'm like handling that dog in a certain way that's defensive but at the same time I'm trying to make sure I'm not getting bit Mm -hmm. I'm causing some amount of discomfort to the dog like a lot of people are gonna look that and look at that and they're gonna they're gonna feel one extreme or the other, right? You know, some people would be like, well, the dog deserved that because they tried to bite the guy. And then other people are going to be like, there's no point in time where it's ever okay to make any dog feel bad at all. And it's like, I don't want to even present any kind of information in a format where I'm opening myself up to have that discussion. So what we do instead is we have an open door policy. So like every time I talk to somebody on the phone, I'm like, if you want to come watch stuff before you sign up, you're welcome to do that because I'm not giving your money back if you sign up. Um, and, and I want you to know exactly like what we do and how we do it. And I need to know that you feel okay about it. And if there's stuff that you're not sure about, or you don't like or whatever, then we can have a conversation, but then you get to make an informed decision. What you're not going to do is judge the people in this room, especially offhand, like without knowing what's going on. And then I'll even have to have conversations with some people sometimes, like maybe there is a person in the room that like mishandles the situation or overcorrects their dog or does something in a way that the person was like, I don't really understand that. And I'm like, well, two things, you don't know that person and you don't know that dog. And so if you had all the answers, you wouldn't be here. And for all, you know, that person knows that like when the dog gets to a certain place, they maybe are not very safe to be around. And so maybe they like just squash something and save somebody else from a potential problem. And like, you don't even know that, right? And so, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of variables that I just try to make sure people are 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 aware that they are unaware of uh, is the first thing. And then the second thing I do try to kind of help people understand is, um, 
you're seeing this dog at a point in time when a certain amount of work has already been done with them. And so like when, especially now in like our skill builder classes where we have very mixed company. Very mixed. Yeah. I'm right? back in the family dog so you, class. So you were like, here, you were here where like, I'm like, and this is how you tie your shoe. Right? Yeah, I know. And, and I'm like, yeah. yeah, you know how to tie your fucking shoes. And you, and, <laughs> and you see, I, what I hope you see is me um, not, treating that person the way I probably treated all of you uh, early on in your time with me. I see, like, I call it, like, the exhausted parents. Like, you raised a bunch That's of kids, and then the youngest one is just, like... Yeah. Well, like, so, <laughs> so what... It, well, I think of that, too. But what it, <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I think. <laughs> I'm like, oh, he's getting soft on He's us. getting soft on us. No, so, so here's what it is for me, is, like, is like it, I, got a, I had to, at a certain point, sit back and say, like, what was my goal? And at first, my goal was I will not sacrifice standards to make people feel better. And then at a certain point, it was like, well, what I'm really trying to do is build better dog owners and more responsible people, especially in a place like where we all live, where we're on top of each other all the time. Yeah. Right? And so then I'm like, well, if I'm going to do that, but I'm scaring away 50% of the people that come here, then I'm not really achieving the goal that I want. And so what I'm trying to do is not lower the level I'm trying to get people to. What I'm trying to do is like, if that's a ladder that a You're person is a climbing, step. I'm trying to put the rungs closer together, right? No, that's what I'm trying to do. It makes complete sense. It and does. then you have people like me who scare away people. And then, oh. <laughs> well, yeah, right? So, yeah. So, and you have, and, and but that's the thing too, is like, I, I'm, I, I hope that I create a scenario, and so far it seems like I have, where we can have an open dialogue with people like that because that person felt some kind of way because they watched you correct your dog for something. It's like your dog knows what a downstay is, and your dog did not do a downstay. Yeah. And it was in an environment and in a context and with a level of distraction that you your dog has proven to you repeatedly that she knows what she's supposed to do. And today she just decided probably nothing other than like, I'm bored, so I'm going to go do something else. You made me lay here for the past 30 minutes, right? And so you corrected her, and this person felt some kind of way about it. It's like, well, I'm glad you said that, and here's your money back, and now I'm, I don't have to deal with you yeah. anymore. Because you're going to be a problem Because you're the kind weeks. of person that I'm going to spend 90% of my time on, and you're not, you're, you're not going to do the work. And I'm going to be, you're going to, you're going to take away from the people who are here and who are serious. And so we just kind of like, we just kind of get rid of those folks. And then with the family dog class, what I'm trying to do is give people who want to do like Pareto principle dog training. I want to do 20% of the work and get 80% of the results. I want to let them have that. But then when they're like, I want 82% and I'm like, motherfucker, you got a lot more work to do then. Because for every 2% extra you want, you got to put in an extra 10% effort, right? Or some shit like that math doesn't work out, but you get my point. You understand what I'm saying? So, like, you can get a lot out of it from a little. But then yeah. people have these, ex they have these higher expectations, and then they just they discount the <laughs> amount of extra effort that it takes to get there. Like, to get a dog to just not jump on people, to not growl, bark, and lunge, and to, to not do whatever two other things pisses you off, most people, I can get that done in one hour lesson right. if they can actually follow yep. instructions and pick yep. it up. But yeah. the idea, like when I tell people, like you have to use a marker and then you have to apply some sort of punishment. Yep. And then like they're, they get, I give them two things to do and they do those out of order. Like that's the problem I'm dealing with sometimes with these folks, right? So, so 
But then what they want is like, they're like, but I want to be able to go to the brewery. And it's like, okay, so what you're saying is like, you want to be around, be able to be around a lot of other people. Many have dogs, many have young children. And all of those dogs and children are completely uncontrolled because those people aren't teaching them appropriately, in my opinion. And so now what you're saying is, I want my dog to have enough responsibility and enough stability to be able to stick them in this situation that I have no control of and make them feel like compromised a lot and then have them still do the right thing. And then yeah. I'm like, okay, now we're talking about a whole lot more work that has to get done. Yeah. So Nate, if a private client came to you and said those exact words, would you spend those five lessons you give just for downstays? Is so that, well, how would you adapt so what to I, their wishes well, versus I, actual? Yeah. I try, I try not to adapt to their wishes, but what I will tell people now is like, if you want to do some sort of customized private lesson program, I'll do that for you. But then you're telling me what we're working on. And then I don't put any sort of, I don't even try to steer it. Right. Like they'll say like, I, well, I want my dog to do this. And I'm like, well, then you need a reliable this. And then you need to teach them not to do that. Right. And then just like try to give them the functional components and then we'll work on those pieces. Uh, but I try to be honest with them about those things. And I'm like, you got to tell me precisely to like, to what level you expect this stuff to work. Yeah. So like I'm working with one group of uh, like one couple, they have a tiny dog that is lashing out at some of the bigger dogs. And all those dogs are showing that dog a lot of grace so far. But so kudos to these people for recognizing like any of my other dogs could murder this dog in a half a second and they're just choosing not to. Let's fix this problem before that it escalates to that point. But at the same time, it's like we've really kind of, when that dog came in, what I saw was this is a dog that has no coping skills at all. So what you came in for was my dog is lashing out at my other dogs. What the real problem is, is that your dog doesn't know how to act in any situation. And then when you try to provide them with any kind of guidance in any format, they freak out and can't cope with that stuff either, right? Like first time you put a collar on that dog and you start putting any pressure on him, he peed himself while fighting me trying to get him to walk in a certain direction of the collar. Yeah. And you see, I've had dogs like that and respond in various ways. I remember Pitbull in Latrobe Park in one of my group classes when I was still running them there, that like threw itself on the ground and was doing gator rolls and stuff like that on leash. And, and so like, as I'm walking through these lessons, I'm trying to show them like, what we needed to work on was this problem, but you have these remedial prerequisite things that have to get fixed before we can do that. And so we did four sessions and we got most of where we needed to go. And what I'm just trying to show people like that is, is like, I'm trying to just state very plainly when I see progress being made so that they can recognize it too, because I think sometimes they don't recognize they don't that. that. Like, I understand progress. that this isn't what we are originally set it out and working on, but the fact that like your dog isn't screaming and biting at the leash and pissing itself when I'm just trying to get it to walk the same direction that I'm walking, that's a lot of progress. <laughs> well, the question is, how do you market that beforehand? You're you talking about... You, you're talking about like my dog can't walk beside me he can't sit and stay and all this obedient stuff when you're focusing more on the mental how do you market that the reason why i'm a bad the reason why i'm a bad business owner is that i don't market it right like when i talk to those people when i talk to those people on the phone what i tell them is like this we have a lot of work to do and like you have a lot of building blocks that we need to put in place on the way to fixing the problem that you have 
I think that the problem that you're expressing, it's a problem for you, but it's just a symptom of the problem your dog's experiencing. And I'm going to let you know right now, like, we'll get some work done in a certain amount of time, but this is going to be a long-term project that we're going to fix. And a lot of this training is not going to be fun for anyone involved because your dog is already showing that they like, they're very uncomfortable in their own skin. And then the way that we, because I have to show them how to do things, I can't tell them about different options in advance, then I have to make them do stuff that they don't want to do, which is going to add stress, not remove it until they start realizing that like doing these things my way lead to outcomes that they wanted. And then they start relaxing. So I'm like, this is going to get a lot harder before it gets easier. This is going to be very, very emotionally stressful, difficult for your dogs. And then for you, because you care about your dogs. And this is where you were saying earlier, like you, you're like soulless. You're not soulless. You're informed, right? It's like you don't make a big deal out of it because you've already been through it. And so like you see how it comes out on the other side. And this is where like the force fetch process is. I think the most <laughs> profound part that people see this is like they, they, people are like, I am destroying my relationship with my dog. And then you get to the other side and you're like, my dog is way more confident than they were before. My dog is way more responsive to the things that I asked them to do more. We actually have this really good relationship um, and, and I've kind of added this extra, this extra layer to that that I didn't even know could really be there until I completed that work. You're and actually better off if you actually don't have that emotion during that process. Yeah, because it gets in the way. Because what that because what that does is you start doubting yourself, and then what happens is you start uh, your timing gets off, right? Because yep. you when, as soon as you second guess yourself, that's when you release pressure when you shouldn't have, or that's when or you get frustrated, and that's when you add a lot of pressure that was not that necessary and excessive, and you see this stuff. And this is going back to like this uh, this whole Navda thing that I'm trying to work on is like. You're, you're working with a group of folks that, um, that have varying skill levels. So I'm like, I'm honestly more nervous for this presentation that I'm doing this weekend than I have been for anything in a really long time because I'm talking to some people that have credentials uh, way above my own, right? So like if I'm talking about obedience to people that have put uh, utility titles and versatile champion titles on uh, maybe even like tens or dozens of dogs like objectively, I feel like they are more accomplished trainers than, than I am. But here's the thing though, is that I will say that, but what I will also say in the same breath is, is like you're working with a lot of people that have generally really well-bred dogs. And so when you have really good raw material, you also see dogs do really well in spite of their training, not because of it. And so there's that balance piece there too. But what I'm saying is like, there is a person that will be there that has a puppy that has never owned a dog before or has owned dogs, but has never owned a hunting dog before. And then there will be people there that are like in their seventies and eighties and have done this stuff since they were a teenager or younger and had dogs the whole times. And they're like, even if they never took a penny from anybody for it, they're a third or fourth generation dog yeah. trainer. You know what I mean? And so, and so trying to like articulate this stuff to people that are so varying in skill level is like intimidating and 
Um, I think it's why I'm trying to really focus on conceptual stuff that I feel like nobody's going to be like, that guy don't know what he's talking about. Or that guy told these people something wrong. I'm trying to focus on like a lot of conceptual stuff that I think everybody can kind of agree on. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really trying to do is I've, I've now had like most of last summer and then the couple training sessions that we've done so far this year to observe people doing things. And what I'm going to try to do is like give people a framework and like a nomenclature for what they're doing to kind of just, I think, structure it a little bit better for people. And that's the piece that I think that it's the one place where I feel like I have some experience that maybe other people don't because of my experience with Keeler method is that framework and having this kind of systematic set of um, like checkpoints and milestones where you say like, this is when you know you're ready to move forward. And then if you start having a high level of failure at the next step, then you missed something. And so you need to kind of do some diagnostics about what it is because what I, what, what you see with the people that are really experienced with this is they, they just do stuff the right way. But I think sometimes they, they have trouble articulating it. And then like when you have a, a good amount of experience trying to explain concepts to people that you know pretty good, but they don't know very well at all, then I think you, you start getting good, hopefully, or better over time at, at trying to explain those things to people in a way that makes sense to them. Um, and so I'm hoping that I can kind of provide that for these folks. It's so what I see people doing a lot is there is the same thing that I see happening with our clients mm-hmm. is like people don't have a clear way of objectively saying like my dog is confused or my dog is being stubborn or disobedient. And I think that those things get confused by mm-hmm. people a lot. Maybe confused isn't the right word. I think people, they have a personality type that biases them to one or the other. A personality type and a lack of experience it's that biases language. them to one or the other. It's different language. But it's also anthropomorphizing what a dog is and forgetting that a dog is fundamentally a different creature from a human and that they don't understand English and they are pattern learners. It's a very different type of learning than what we are. Mm-hmm. And we kind of assume that the dog knows what we want yeah. because we're assuming we're teaching they did it once. a human, right? <laughs> so I think a lot of people just, I, I was just talking to someone and I said, dogs don't understand English. And she looked at me, and you could see the light bulb go off. And she's like, oh, of course. But even even that, right? So, like, let's talk about I've been watching people work on force fetch the past couple times I've been there. And so, like, when you say something like uh, like their first step, so they kind of really just break force fetch down into three categories. They do the hold and carry first where you're placing objects in the dog's mouth. Mm-hmm. And then as quickly as you can, you're trying to get them to move around and hold on to those things. And they do a lot of different objects in the hold and carry part first. If I put it in your mouth... You must hang on to it, and then you move around and don't drop it is their first step. So then they're like, when you've done that with all of these different objects and you're not having refusals, then that's when you're ready to move forward. And what I – take it easy. Thanks for coming. What I, what I want even more than that, though, is like a, a more clear criteria for moving forward. And so like – So you'll see, like, you'll see people say, like, my dog doesn't like these certain objects. And so then you're like, well, what, what does that mean yeah. when you say your dog doesn't like mm-hmm. these objects? Well, 
if you really dig down into it, it's like the dog drops these things a couple times and I have to like get on them or correct them for it. And then they'll start holding it and carrying it. And so for me, it's like, well, until it's happening right all the time or right way more than that. And then like, I'm not having to do all this precursor warm up, like kind of remember you have to do this yeah. reminding of the dog that I'm not ready to move forward. And that's important because that's an important milestone for me because a lot of times this stuff happens when the object is odd or it's made of a material that the dog feels like they're having trouble handling or it's heavy. And so then sometimes it's not that the dog is being, uh, just saying like, I, I don't like this, right? And spitting it out. They're like, I'm lacking in confidence in my ability to do this stuff. And so like a lot of times I find with my dogs, if I'm handing them something new, and I'm telling them to carry it, they're going to fumble it and they might drop it the first time or two. And you see them, they look a little, no, I won't say scared, but like, they're like, I know I just messed up. And they're like kind of waiting for a correction. And I'm just trying to encourage them and we'll just repeat it a couple. I'll just reset the exercise a couple times because what I see from my dogs at this point, because I've done enough negative reinforcement of mm -hmm. exercise, like they know I can make them if I need to. And they understand turning pressure off clearly enough that like, they're not gonna not try. And that's really my criteria, which is hard to articulate to somebody doing a new exercise. Yeah. Is like, I'm only gonna correct you early on if you're not trying. And so when I see the dog is trying to figure out how to manipulate this thing and try to carry it, I'm gonna give them the time to do that. And then yeah. what you start seeing is confidence in them, not just in the fact that they're holding it and not dropping it, or they're not looking like they're having to concentrate really hard and their eyes are starting to cross and all that weird stuff you see, right? Like when they're trying to hang on to it, but you, you see, you see their tail kind of go up and you see them, they go from like looking like somebody that's carrying something and trying not to drop it to like looking like, like I'm trying to show off a little mm -hmm. bit. Right. And it's like, now we add pressure. Now we add pressure, you know what I mean? I think that that's the big thing for me. Um, and that's what I think gets missed sometimes is like, I think a lot of, and again, I'm like, I'm not trying to be critical of any one group, but it's a common mistake. And it's a mistake that I've made a lot too, is I think people mistake lack of confidence or lack of clarity disobedience. as disobedience or stubbornness, mm -hmm. Yeah. right? Especially if we're okay with using compulsion in training like if I know that I can kind of like twist the dog's arm, right? Or like do something to make them uncomfortable enough that they want to turn that pressure off. Then at that point, if they're doing a bunch of other stuff that's not turning that pressure off, like they're trying a bunch of other things. I don't know how you can do anything but own, like maybe I didn't make it clear how you turn the pressure off, yeah. right? And then you, you kind of continue down this road and you have conversations with people. And you just see them working on things. It's like, I can, like, I see somebody using like an e-collar while they're also trying to handle their dog. And I just see them get frustrated. And if I'm really paying attention, I'm looking at that light on that collar or the light on the remote. And I see That's it stop blinking because they stopped tapping that Nick button or they stopped holding down continuous pressure just turned off. And just whether, out. whether yeah. you accidentally did that or not from the dog's perspective, the discomfort that I felt that I was trying to find a solution to, I just found it. And that might've been Time. avoiding <laughs> what I wanted to do, right? It might've been hiding or running away from you. It could have been a lot of different things, but the dog is just trying to solve their problem and you've now given them a way other than the way you intended for them to solve their problem. I see that so much, mm -hmm. especially with people who are new to any exercise. 
right? Like in your class here the other day when you're on family dog stuff, the one new lady, when I'm having her get her dog up on kennel, her application and release of pressure was very haphazard at first. And it didn't take us very long to kind of clean that up and work on it, but that worked because she wasn't super stressed out and the dog wasn't super stressed out. So we kept that low enough that everybody could kind of find their groove and get successful. And then that's the other problem I see when like the, the teaching environment is too stressful or the dog has some underlying anxiety, fear, whatever kind of issues that we need to work on first or whatever the case may be, or maybe like the instructor is kind of instructing the person to be more aggressive and confrontational than they need to be. Like all of that creates a situation where no one is able to be in a place where they're being responsive instead of reactive. And then it causes problems. And then people are like, well, see, we're having a problem and we fix it by doubling down on the thing that caused that problem in the first place is usually what happens a lot of times. Right. And that's what we're trying to kind of fix. So, so, we're supposed to do this obedience stuff, but what I'm really trying to do is hopefully articulate some training concepts to people that they make sense and it, and it helps them out. I don't know. We'll see. Or people are just going to think I'm an asshole and a know-it-all, You'll and I'm fine. not trying to come off that way at all. You don't come across as a know-it-all. You don't. You don't. That's good. Yeah. She didn't say I don't come across. I don't come across as an asshole, though. Well, I would say intimidating, <laughs> but or brusque, but I would not. I wouldn't say asshole. The thing I would about- say direct, like, and, which I appreciate, too, because I don't need, like, I'd rather you just tell me what the fuck I'm doing wrong yeah. than, like, be like, then give me, like, a five-minute, like, explanation. Just tell me to, like, at least, like, just stop, and this is why. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, yeah. trying to talk somebody through something when they're struggling sometimes is like, no, I just need to pause. It's like, all right, well, how do I... I, I'm like I went through it with Cleo with her with her force fetch like all right well she's downright refusing I don't and it was probably she didn't know what to do to yeah. get the pressure off but like I can't let go of the pressure so do we what do we do now yeah. like, so she doesn't think that this worked well and you and you also you were very what, what was helpful in that whole process was you were very candid about like a couple things so like I know that I don't have the most solid relationship with this dog. Mm -hmm. I know that this dog is willing to use her mouth in inappropriate ways. Mm -hmm. And I know that if that happens with me, then that's like... That bitch will not sleep in my bed. Right, right. I will not live with a dog that bites me because she doesn't want to do something that's not going to hurt her. Right. So, So you're like, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to achieve this goal within a certain level of constraints. Mm -hmm. And that's where, as long as you can articulate those things to me and they're not ridiculous then as a professional i should be able to meet that need and so what did we do we used more indirect pressure Mm -hmm. right we used e-collar for some stuff we got we got we got that stuff to a point where we were able to do that and it comes from putting a lot more controls in place and this is where some trainers just really chat my ass with the way that they kind of like say stuff about this so like um like there's some trainers out there that they'll engage in these confrontational interactions with dogs and then like they get chewed up by the dogs. And then they're like, they, they, they talk about these things like that is a, uh, that that's like, they're doing it right. And that like, this is just the cost the of doing business yeah. sometimes. And like, it's like a badge of honor for them. And I'm like, if I went to like a, a shooting instructor and that motherfucker was full of bullet holes 
<laughs> that's a bad. That's a bad <laughs> shooting instructor, right? Well, like I mean, it's another thing too. Like all the stuff that we've done with Cleo, I never want her to ever put. Not just because I don't want her to bite somebody, but I never want her to think that's an option. Because guess what? If she bites somebody, it doesn't matter what happened. Eventually, like she got her way. Whatever we were doing is gonna stop because she bit somebody. Like, and that's the piece mm-hmm. I think people miss is like there's two things I'm trying to do is I'm not ever trying to avoid a fight with a dog that wants to fight, but. If I recognize that in a dog or the willingness to go there, then I'm going to work in a way where I am always prepared to handle that problem mm-hmm. in a way where what you just said can't happen. Yep. And, and that requires some forethought and planning and sometimes certain equipment. We recently, like I just got done building my new force fetch table, which that. is like super dope and I can't wait to use it for all kinds of stuff. But um, I, we have a dog that we're working with in private in private sessions right now that was, like, biting her owners when they were trying to put, like, flea and tick stuff on her and clip her nails and all sorts of other stuff. Just, like, very weird. Like, the dog kind of gets sketched out, but the dog has also learned, like, biting works. And so from the very first time we started doing any physical handling stuff, we basically tied that dog down, right? Two collars on the neck uh, hooked up to, to, like, posts so they can't move their head one way or the other. And then usually when we started it, like two collars around the waist strapped off the stuff too. So basically the dog is immobilized. We wanted to build one of these years ago. Does (laughs) the dog need that? Probably not. Probably not. Do the people need that so they can just do stuff and not worry about the dog like biting them so they can can conduct themselves with a level of confidence um, that is required to communicate to the dog like I am in control and you don't have to be worried about this, but if I'm coming in looking all super creeper-like and, and sketched out, then that's going to make the dog feel some kind of way. And so we, we, we use all of this equipment. It, it wasn't really for the, I mean, it was for the benefit of the dog, but what the immediate purpose was for the people. Yeah. This is the same thing with muzzles a lot of times. It's like, if I had my way, I wouldn't put muzzles on most dogs in most situations. But what muzzles do for a person who has a dog that is engaging in inappropriate behavior like biting people or biting dogs is it lets you immediately go the thing i'm most worried about happening now cannot happen now it can't happen and so then you just get to operate with a different level of stress right Mm -hmm. a much lower level of stress which is what lets you think and work your way through stuff and that is this is like this whole thing with the dogs and the people is i'm trying to i'm trying to like put these rungs on the ladder closer together so you're not having to take these big leaps because sometimes you just can't. And so you have to do it in a way where people can, people and dogs can kind of work at a pace that's appropriate for them and build that confidence. And what you were saying before, I think I, I look at there being two phases in teaching clients just like there is with dogs. There's the teaching phase where I'm just going to try to say like, okay, that was good and now let's add this extra piece. And so that's my way of saying like, you weren't doing this right, but it's because I can tell you were focused on this other piece that I told you to do. So now that that part's going well and that part is pretty constant, let's let's add this new piece in and then we'll build it up. Like when I'm teaching people sit placements now, I'm not trying to tell them like, your hands need to be like this and the dog needs to sit straight and they need to be by your side and, 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 and. Like I'm not doing that. It's like if you just get the dog in a sit, I'm happy. And then we'll yeah. talk about... Let's get more intentional about your application of pressure. And then when that's going well, now let's worry about the dog's Ooh. positioning. And I'm trying to be more iterative in my criticism for those folks now. And then they get through that point, And then we're at a point where they're doing something wrong repeatedly. And I'm like, you did it wrong again. You did it wrong again. 
you did it wrong again. You did it wrong again. And then they do it right. And I'm like, yeah, you did it right, right? Which is like, that's the, so we're out of the teaching phase and we're in the training phase where the stakes are still pretty low, but now I'm just, I'm just correcting your errors. And I'm, I, I've given you the knowledge you need, so I just need you to act on it. Yeah. And that's the point where I think a lot of people try to push too fast, where it's like, no, you need to see that there's mastery of this before you start trying to break it again with proofing, which is the last phase of training, right? Where you're trying to go through this process of using distractions in different environments to like deepen the level of commitment the dog has to doing the things that you're asking them to do. And, and that does require, like, being comfortable with this thing that you built, like, it breaking a little bit. And then you'd be like, no, no, let's, let's piece this back together, right? And that, that becomes really uncomfortable for people also. Yeah. Look at all the fashion breaking of everything we've been doing. <laughs> that, that's a whole learning thing. Like, that's why I was doing, it is. bringing back what we're about with quilts it. and other things. Like, you do that thing that makes you uncomfortable because you lean into that and it actually, when you get to the other side, you've actually come out of it learning a little bit more. Yeah. And you more deepen so. that understanding yes. of what's happening. Yes. And um, I want to share with you, there's a Ira Glass, I don't know if you, This American Life, I'll show you, just, just, he talks about the gap. And there's this gap in learning where you think you're good at something and you're really interested in something and you do it and you suck at it. And then you want to give up, but if you just keep doing it and keep doing it, eventually you get good at it, and you have to be okay. Or you accept with it. This gap. Accept not being good at it. <laughs> well, that's another thing, and this there's also this kind of uh, this thing that if you're good at something, you have to be able to monetize it. Like so, like you know, you get good at something, so it has to be worth something, right? So if you're not good at something then it's not worth anything because you can't make money from it. There's like that okay. cultural thing. You know what I'm saying? I get what you're saying. So I make quilts and there are mistakes and I don't care because that's not what it's about. No. It's about the creation of the beauty and like all the, even the emotions you go through in creating it. I Yeah, I think that that, and that's like, I missed some of that because I had to go to the restroom. But um, I think like I think that that is the part that a lot of people have trouble with, and, and adults don't do a lot of stuff where they're not good at it. Mm -hmm. So they get they, they get right they away. start becoming very uncomfortable with those things, and they quit right away instead of being mm -hmm. comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that I think the term for a lot of what we're talking about is zone of proximal development or something like that, right? Yeah. Where it's like it's this place where I gotta challenge you enough that you can push forward and grow, but not so much that like I crush your soul and then mm -hmm. you wanna quit. And the problem with a lot of adults now is that they're not used to flexing that muscle. So the amount of push you can do before mm -hmm. they quit is kind of minimal for a lot of folks. And that more and more, that's the kind of stuff that like when I'm, when I'm like measuring a person, like when I'm, judging how I feel oh, yes. about somebody. It's like that stuff that matters to me more and more than like their particular opinion about this or that or whatever. Cause like that kind of stuff, like what we're talking about now, I think is just a, is a that's more of like an actual like character trait, right? Then like mm -hmm. a lot of that other stuff can just be sort of 
nurtured one way or another. Yeah. But I think some of that is like you don't get to be that way without choosing to be that way. Because like even if you grew up in a way where stuff wasn't easy for you and you were constantly challenged, at some point you get to make a choice to be like, I don't like that, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Exactly. And so like at a certain point as an adult, people have made conscious choices to do hard things. Mm-hmm. And so I like that. And so the ones that I normally kind of talk about and see is like people who lift weights, right? This is a thing where like you don't get instant gratification no. and you have to work really, really hard yeah. and you have to, you have to spend a lot of time on that stuff. And you can build more than most things. You can build a set of skills and you can uh, develop yourself to a certain point. And then, man, if you take like two weeks off. The amount that you mm. like, the amount you regress yes. from that is yes. worse than most things. Worse. It's the worst. Yeah. Literally the worst. Yeah. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of things that I think people can do. Like there's a lot of intellectual pursuits where people can acquire knowledge and maybe that part was challenging, but once they have it, they have it. And then it's done and over with, right? To yeah. a certain degree. Um, but with something like that, it's just, it's a grind and it's just always going to be a grind. It's a continual growth. Yeah. It continues. Like I, I continue to get stronger every week. I've had setbacks from injuries and stuff like that. But what I, I was telling Justin outside, cause he said I, a lot of times ego gets in the way and I'm like, oh, I can throw some weight down. I was like, and that, and that's part one of my workout. That's why I do CrossFit because part two is like the workout of the day. That is humbling. Because while I am, like, one of the probably top five strongest, like, girls, like, at our gym, yeah. I am in the bottom five of the workout, just endurance-wise. I just yeah. don't have it. I can yeah. pick stuff up and put it down, but if you need me to do that for 20 minutes straight, we're going to have a problem. Sure, sure. We're going to have an issue. Yeah. So, like, that's my balance with it. Yeah. And you're in charge of your, with CrossFit, you're in charge of your own scaling. So, like, they'll prescribe it one way, which is for the insane people that, like, compete and stuff like that. But then you can see you scale like the weight that you're gonna do to like what you're comfortable at, sure. Or like a gymnastics movement, like I can't do toes to bar for like 20 reps in a row. So you'll like scale it to like hanging and like lifting your knees up. So like you're in charge of your own scaling. So you you still want to challenge yourself. But like anytime I come like in top 10 of girls for the gym, I'm like. I didn't, I like, I overscaled. Like I could have done worse because I know where I fall. Like I fall at the bottom and I'm fine with that. It means that I got the like legit most intense workout that I could get because it took me the longest or I got the least amount of reps because like, I like, I just took on a little bit more than I could chew, but that's what keeps you going back for more. It's like, I, I see like comparisons from like three years ago, like doing a certain workout and it's come back up and I'm like, well, it took me five more minutes, but I did like 50 more pounds and like two steps up on a movement. That's so. a remarkable level of self-awareness and humility to be like, I. It's a checks and balances. Because sure. what you're basically <laughs> saying is you're like, you're like, I know that I didn't do what I should have done because this is saying that I did better than I know that yes. I should have done compared to yes. these other people. 100%. Right. Yeah. Which is like. Also a really healthy thing to do and since that's what we spend a lot of time doing is comparing ourselves to other people and to do it in a way that's like um, you're still able to engage in that that comparative analysis but not in a way that is uh, like demoralizing or maybe bad for your mental health or anything mm-hmm. like that right so that's I, that's 
I, yeah, I didn't know. I just thought like the workout of the day, they just put something on there and you're the, just like, okay, and so, now it's time yeah, to die. So I didn't like, know there was like yeah, so no, much. Yeah, no, so there's time, there's like, there's time to die. So like yesterday, I know that I overscaled because I did pretty decent. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. So you're like, all right, so I keep getting notifications because people are like in my back squat. I can back squat a lot. Cannot, cannot do like endurance-based workouts. Right, right. Which is the other half of it. But let's see here. Your schedule. Let's go to yesterday. So it was like a thousand meters of rowing, ten power cleans, and then a hundred double unders. So double the jump rope in one jump. I can't do those. So it was a hundred or it was a hundred double unders and then ten strict handstand push-ups. So like upside down, strict, like no like bouncing or anything. Can't yeah. do those either. So I did a thousand meter rowing because everybody can row. That's fine. It was three rounds of that. And then for power cleans, they say like the fittest women and strongest women should do 135. And I was like, well, I'm not doing 135 today. That's not happening because that's not a lot less than like my what my like max is. So I was like, I'll do 85. You know, it's 30 of them. And then I did a hundred just single jump. And then I did seated presses instead of upside down and pressing my whole body. Well, I came in like sixth place and I'm like, I should have done heavier power cleans because the, that rowing killed me. I couldn't breathe. But by the time I get back to it, I like was fully like, oh, this, I was like doing the seated dumbbell presses and like, like consecutively instead of like that sh- in comparison to being upside down and pressing your body up and down off the ground, like doing a handstand push-up, like a seated on the press, like should be pretty terrible. And mine weren't. So I overscaled. I did. I'm fine with that. It happens some days. And then some days you just don't have it. Oh, okay. some days everyone is cleaned up and they're all staring at me. Yeah. And, so, and like I go with a lot of the same people every day because I nice. go at, like to a noon class. And they're like, come on, Lauren, like, just leave. Just leave me here to die. <laughs> like, Yeah, we ran four miles two weeks, two weeks ago. And I, I, I ran it in an hour and six minutes. And then last week I ran five miles in an hour and ten minutes. So it was super slow the, the first the, when I did the four miles. And I just kind of leaned into that. I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm just slow today. I just don't have it, but yeah. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. And then the next week, I was super fast. <laughs> well, okay, I wasn't super fast, but that's super I was fast because I'm like a probably a 12 minute mile. Yeah. Oh no no no! So I'm like a 13, 14 minute mile. Yeah, but that's multiple miles you're doing. Well, I did five miles without stopping. Yeah. And the dogs. Had I can't do more than a quarter mile without stopping to at least like. Well, I'll got, kick all your asses because I'm in my truck. I got, a, yep. <laughs> yeah, I got a half marathon coming in May and then Ooh. the Chicago marathon I'm doing in, in October. How many miles of the marathon? 20? 26. Ooh. So, no. It's flat. Chicago, <laughs> they keep saying Chicago's flat. But uh, it's like, so. what I was trying to say is like, there are days where you just have to like be in your body and know mm-hmm. that it's okay yep. wherever you land. Like you're, no matter what, you're doing more than you would be if you weren't doing it. So it's like <laughs> what Nate says, like, you are training this dog in this moment yes. at this time. Yes. So you got to, I think we're hard on ourselves. We're hard on them. And so you just always have to kind of. Oh, like I struggle with that. Stay with the two different in the present moment. Too. Struggle with that. Back. No, I do. I struggle with that. And mm-hmm. like, 
working with crazy pants compared to lazy pants. The thing, I think like a certain amount of ego is healthy when you're, that you're inflicting that on yourself. Right. And then I think a certain amount of ego is good because that's also where like, I think confidence comes from. Right. But then the issue is when that stuff gets projected on other people and especially like with, with dogs, like it's more and more why I try to like tell people like you can approach this work in a way where you're trying to help your dog understand things or you can approach this in a way where it's like you're trying to beat your dog at this activity. And that's a, that's a distinction that I think people develop over time. But it's a thing that I see a lot, especially in group environments where people are trying to show that their dog doesn't suck. And so, like, I appreciate that in the sense that um, you care. What I don't appreciate, and I'm guilty of this too, is when like people will place their dog in a predicament that they're, they didn't really prepare their dog for because they're kind of trying to show off, mm-hmm. or they um, do something they do something that their dog wasn't ready for, like made too big of a jump in a training exercise, and then they come down on the hard, mm-hmm. hard on the dog when they fail. Um, and it's like, maybe the reason why you made such a big leap is because you had an audience. And maybe the reason why you came down mm-hmm. on the dog so hard is because you have a big audience and not necessarily that anybody's going to be impressed with you acting like an ass towards your dog, but just because you're f- that extra level of stress, you can't really cope with very well. Mm-hmm. And so it takes like to, to manage all of those variables. It takes a certain amount of like experience and, I I make jokes all the time that like a lot of, I think my development, a lot of areas of my life is driven by spite or regret. It's somebody (laughs) telling me, somebody telling me I can't do something a certain way or it's because I did some shit and I feel really bad about it. And so I'm trying to be better as a result of that sort of stuff. And so it's gotta be, even with that kind of stuff is like, hopefully you keep yourself in check well enough that your mess ups don't eat at you that bad. Um, and hopefully like the only you're not doing stuff for the only reason of like proving other people wrong because that's a very like external way of looking at stuff right which I don't think is super healthy either then you're not like you're you're not looking at it from like a place where like you're just I'm trying to get better and like you know I'm, I'm trying to beat me yesterday right and that kind of stuff so but I see that a lot and I especially see it in like I especially see it in uh, dog sports. Mm. Like people who are training their dogs to hunt, I don't see it as much as I see people who are training their dogs to pass tests. And this is a thing for me too, is like when I have a deadline, I find that I'm trying to push myself a lot harder. And so like the German testing systems that we do with our dogs, you have very defined like springtime of a specific year I'm allowed to attempt to do this and then fall of a specific year I'm allowed to attempt to do this and that's the only opportunity you have so it kind of makes you have to do stuff a certain way mm-hmm. and that's helpful because it's letting you know like these dogs are, are are mature enough and developed enough to handle certain kinds of training at certain periods of time and to show certain capabilities at certain periods of time when they're very young which is 
good for the breeding program and the intentions of that breeding program, but it's bad if you're really trying to do things like really all the way right by the dog, I think, and maybe doing the best for like your goals um, with like a hunting companion. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, I see ego come up a lot. And then I think in that community, like with hunting folks, you're dealing with a lot of guys. <laughs> you're dealing with um, a lot of guys who, as much as they don't want to act like they care what other people think, oh, they probably they care totally more care. than what other people think than a lot of other, other folks do. Like, you know, big trucks and a lot of, and like, you know, expensive, even like when we're talking about like outfits people wear and stuff like that, like dress in a certain way is like, the brand of camo that you show up wearing, like it, it says something, right? Uh -huh. Like, like people show up wearing Sitco, which is like the Lululemon of, of <laughs> who got money for that? Yeah, right. So like Sitco or Kuyu or like I'll, I, I wear some First Light stuff, which is another kind of like higher end um, camo company. I only have their merino wool mostly, and I only buy that shit on sale. Um, but it's fine. I have snowboarding gear that is like it's Burton. It's like the whatever. But you get my wears. point, right? You get my point. Is like is like. But it is you, quality. You shit. are you. It is quality, <laughs> but you are also. That's not the only reason most mm -hmm. people are buying it, because most people aren't guides that are out or or people that are out there hunting like a hundred plus days a year. Yeah. Most people they hunt, you know, thirty or less days per season, and then. You know, they're like weekend warriors. And then a lot of times it's like, well, if you're sitting in a heated duck blind, then it don't really matter if you got the best damn insulation anyway, if you got a buddy heater sitting right. right at your feet. So you see a lot of that kind of stuff too. And you see it in, in our classes too with certain people more than others. But you have some people that like, they just, they get really frustrated at their dog when they don't do something particularly well. And then I just try to remind people like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables that maybe you're not accounting for. We taught a class the other night where it was like, it was dark outside. And um, we had 20 dogs there. A couple of the dogs were pretty aggressive. And so like a lot of dogs were a little edgy. And so they weren't really super stable, particularly in, st like in stationary behaviors. Yeah, it was the first week of, of Keeler. Oh, it's a new novice place. It's like weird. With, with, with dogs. So it was oh, week two. Yeah, you were there. And so... Some of the dogs are a little spooky, and it's like, well, this is a lot different than the environments that a lot of them have been in. So as long as they're not doing anything particularly heinous, like, consider it a pretty good job that they're keeping their composure and, and keeping it together and all that good stuff, you know? So, I don't know. Well, it's 8 o'clock, so I guess we can wrap this up. I think this was fun. I think it was a good conversation. I found it interesting. I like, did, too. I would listen to this and be like, that, was, that wasn't a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs>